Net-A-Porter presents the Incredible Women podcast, Series 7, Vision and Voice. Welcome to the new series of the Incredible Women podcast, where we sit down with women who are committed to pushing for positive change. Those who are using their platforms to create space for others, and those who are shaping the future with their ideas and drive. Some of these incredible women you'll already be familiar with, and others we're excited to introduce you to. I'm Kay Barron, fashion director at Netaporte, and I am thrilled to be joined for this episode of our Vision and Voice podcast by the incredible Harry Neff, actor, writer, model, and muse to many. I love things that are so real they're fake and things that are so fake they're real. You know, these are aesthetics and ideas that are appealing to me. And I just had a feeling, especially with Greta at the helm, that we were not going to shy away from these trickier parts of the Barbie legacy and of the doll legacy. In less than a decade, Harry has achieved what so many dream of, building an enviable body of work across some of the toughest industries in the world, and she has nailed every single one, seemingly effortlessly. Whether walking for a JW Anderson runway show, being nominated for her performances in some of the biggest TV shows, interviewing John Waters, or starring in one of the most successful movies ever, Harry brings a unique confidence to everything she does. I've been such a huge fan for such a long time, so I'm very excited to talk to Harry today. I have to say hi Harry, I am thrilled to be speaking with you today. Um how are you and where are you today? Um I'm good. I've got a day ahead so it's just getting started taking t- just taking every moment as it comes. I'm in New York City, not too far from where I live in the West Village. Well hopefully this will be a nice painless start to your day. Um so obviously this series is called Vision and Voice and I want to talk to your vision first because you've already built an incredible career. But have you always had a very clear vision of what it was you wanted to achieve and how you wanted to achieve it? I think I definitely had a clear vision of what I wanted to achieve, especially when I was younger. I think I had a very definite sense of the kind of person I wanted to be and the kind of work I wanted to do. But I think as I get older, I understand more that things never turn out the way you think. think they're frequently more interesting and um difficult and potentially cooler than even the pipe dream that you lay your head on when you dream about your future. I feel like I still kind of have smaller, looser, but still specific goals kind of here and there as um markers, but I'm trying to divest as much as i can from expectations and you know strict standards that i hold myself to it, it's a, it's a fine line between goals and um i guess restricting ambitions i don't want to limit myself because if i'm so focused on one thing i might not see something else that's an opportunity around me Well also I think that um I mean especially for me if the reality was exactly as I was dreaming it it would be much more boring than it is thankfully reality has a lot more twists and turns than than anything I can think about 
Um, but how how old were you when you thought, okay, I know I want to I want to move to New York? And was it modeling first or acting first? What was the the, the thing that brought you there? Definitely acting. I I had no um, ambition to be a model. I definitely was interested in fashion. And, you know, in my wildest little fantasies, it's like, oh, what would modeling be like? But I, that, that, I, I was not ever really identified by myself or anyone else as um, a model-esque person until I was, like, in my early 20s. It, it was really all about New York and, you know, the community in New York, the downtown culture, the party culture, the queer culture. Um, and also, I, I, I just wanted to be a working actor, particularly in theater. I, I moved to New York at 18 to study drama at um, Columbia. I very clearly knew where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. Was there no other choice? It was New York or nothing? No, there there were other choices, but I think Eventually, yeah, I, I knew that whether it was for college or after college, that's definitely somewhere I was going to um, try, give it a shot. I think because I was very, very online from, you know, even my preteens, and I, I read a lot of magazines, I had a window into... New York and the youth culture there. Um, you know, it was like the beginning of like digital cameras at parties. Like I would look at like party photos online. I would, you know, I would read like V Magazine and, you know, the New York Times Magazine that, you know, would come to my house on a Sunday. Like I was very tuned in, like kind of in a nerdy, like dreaming one day um, sort of aspirational way. I, 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 I knew exactly like which club I wanted to go to and like... <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, it's it's seeing who your tribe could be, isn't it? Right. And, you know, I, I had an amazing support system, you know, in my hometown in Newton, Massachusetts. You know, my parents were amazing. My high school friends were amazing. But I never quite felt like I found exactly a, a tribe of people who were, you know, not only in my corner, but similar to me kind of in a superficial way with, you know, a similar experience and affect and even aspiration. It was definitely, I, I knew that the tribe was going to be somewhere in New York. And it also definitely, it, it wasn't really even uptown on the Columbia campus. I found that out very quickly <laughs> that I was going to have to take the train <laughs> to um, find that, whatever that was, because I wasn't even totally sure. I just went off instinct. But again, it's it's that sense to explore and to discover, which I think, you know, the big cities offer that to you. Um, sometimes you discover things you don't want to. And then <laughs> but then if hopefully it will throw up surprises at the same time in a good way. Yeah. Um, but also I think as you're a visionary in, in terms of the path that you've carved for yourself and everything that you've achieved, do you feel like a pioneer yourself? I think of you as a pioneer. I don't think of myself as a pioneer because the more I broaden my understanding of, I guess, history and, you know, the history of New York, the history of actresses, the history of people like me moving through the places and spaces and um, 
you know, the profession that I've chosen, nothing I've done hasn't been done before. It's just I've been given the privilege at the right place at the right time, you know, to do it bigger than those before me. But it's very clear. To, I mean, the, the, the chain of, you know, door opening and four mothers and four fathers and four folks is, is very clear to me. Sometimes it's just people who are two, three, four, five years older than me who have very clearly set a milestone for me to walk upon. And there are girls, boys, and folks like two, three, four, five years younger than I have who have said to me directly, like, thank you. So it's, um, you know, I, I, I don't think of myself kind of isolated as a pioneer. I think of myself as part of a chain that continues. And the people who come after you, they, you know, open more doors for you. That's very true. And I think it's it, the difference, I suppose, is the privilege of platform at this time. Yeah, it's it's all quite arbitrary in terms of who gets the platform, when and why. But ultimately, I, I really try to hold on to the idea that it's not that serious, that it's just a job, that, you know, work or visibility can't be the center of my mind or my heart. And I try to put all of that stuff second and focus on the people around me, my friends and my family. I, that sounds so kind of like pageanty American values, but <laughs> it wasn't until I decentralized work that work really started to, um, you know, ramp up in a way it hasn't before, which is, you know, the context in which I'm speaking to you now. Well, I think you could, if you give yourself a distance from it, you can see it better. You can see it more clearly and probably in the direction that you want to, to move in. Um, because you have been kind of pivotal to the cultural zeitgeist, not least because of the roles that you have chosen. Um, so really, I, mean, I like I. I think I, I think so, and maybe it's just because you are basically in every single TV show, movie that I am watching and get obsessed with. <laughs> Be- like I, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> because I, I was going to say to you, because you know, obviously, there's like groundbreaking, transparent, which I loved. Um, just like that, which is obviously beloved and, you know, everyone's obsessed with it. Um, the much, much discussed The Idol recently. <laughs> and then you have Barbie coming out this year. But I was thinking, can this, is this cannot be pure luck. This must be excellent forecasting and excellent taste on your, on your part to have chosen these roles and, be, and believed and believed in these shows as well. You know, I, I've, I've never played a lead role in my entire career. I still feel very much like I am... It's not like I'm like on the rise or something. I, I'm I'm putting in the work and I'm like paying it and like earn. I, I still feel very much like I'm earning it and very much like I'm learning and in training. You know, very much like C list at best on my better days. Like you know, I, I I I'm lucky to have been part of these projects and especially earlier on in my career, I really didn't want to be a part of anything that I didn't think was well written and or cool and or meaningful. And I totally lucked out with Transparent being my first job. But after that, I think I became a little too curatorial and a little too much of my own kind of agent and publicist. And I probably turned down a lot of things that I could have made work for me, even if they didn't seem to on paper. It wasn't until I kind of like let go of the choosy, choosy, choosy and just started saying yes to almost everything 
that, um, you know, I was able to just be on set more and, like, deepen my love of acting and my experience with it. I think now maybe I'm thinking more critically about what I want to do after Barbie and all of this stuff coming out. I'm hoping that I'll have more options. But but again, I... Um, I don't know. I, I I was I was never I was never gonna be like everybody's ingenue. And I think that these projects have found me because their casting perspective is looking for something different in a way. And I think I deliver that. But it's hard to, you know, again, it's not it's something that squares in these like, you know, scene stealer guest roles, supporting roles. It's not giving lead as much. And that's kind of the one sort of long-term thing I'm aspiring to right now. I'm wondering how that that could look for me. Uh, well, I'm excited to see that because from my sofa, you're definitely, because you appear in everything, <laughs> you feel you feel more like a lead to me and definitely not a C-list, I'll tell you that. Thanks. Because I do think, and I, I just to go back to this point, because I do think you have obviously excellent taste in in what you're choosing, but what what were the shows that you were brought up on that you loved watching that that influenced you to to choose the work you're doing now? Well, I've watched Sex and the City like probably thirty times. It's my, com- it's my, it's like meditation for me. It's just on in the background. It's yeah, it's it's so comforting. It's my comfort show for sure. I've I actually have put myself in Sex and the City timeout. Um, I'm not allowing myself to watch it until I turn thirty two, which is how old Carrie is in the first season. As much as I love the show, I think that it sort of colored or not even colored, kind of like stamped and defined the way I saw dating and relationships in New York in a way that maybe has not served me specifically <laughs> in my life. You know, I loved being a part of the show because I felt like I was invited into this world that was so aspirational to me. But I think, you know, as I like made it through my late 20s, you know, the things that are good for Carrie or the things that apply to Carrie are maybe not the things that apply to me, you know different women living in different times, even if they're living in the same city and, you know, wear the same shoes. I don't want to date an investment banker, A. B, I don't want to date an investment banker that I break up with eight times a year. You know, I also don't know if I'm, you know, looking for a single, all-consuming monogamous love. You know, that's a new frontier for me to, like, think outside of that. Those girls just weren't really on the tip that me and my friends and my lovers are on. And in trying to broaden my perspective on what love and romance is, I'm taking a break from the show. I think that's healthy. (laughs) I'm going to dive into another rewatch when I'm 32 and watch it from the eyes of, this is allegedly me now at 32. (laughs) Well, I was kind of watching it almost in kind of um, slightly younger, but it felt more real. And I was living in London. And even I was like, I don't think that New York's on this planet if these are the same <laughs> the same guys. This is this is not my life at all. Um, but obviously, I mean, as much as I would actually sit here and talk to you about Sex and the City and just like that for the rest of the day, that will have to be another podcast um, <laughs> because we have to talk about Barbie. Yeah, let's do it. How did you secure the role? And what does it mean to you to be in literally the most anticipated film, not only of the year, I'd say probably of the, as soon as it was announced, so two or three years ago? I secured the role with one audition, one tape, one scene, no callback, no screen test, no chemistry read, which made me feel really good. 
I don't know, maybe one day if Warner Brothers lets me, I'll like post my audition tape. I, w- I was shooting a horror movie in Ithaca at the time. Um, it's called Bad Things. It, it comes out in um, August on Shudder. And my co-star, Gail Rankin, you know, we took a break from like running for our lives and screaming in this hotel and um, shot the Barbie audition. <laughs> oh my God, brilliant. Yeah, it was. I, I was like in the midst of like deep, abject Shelley Duvall horror movie horror and then I took a break from that to play Barbie and um yeah I just sent it off I didn't really have high hopes you know I didn't hear anything and my agents were being kind of cagey and I was about to go to LA to shoot um the LA law pilot which didn't end up going but um my agents were basically like okay so we're just going to tell you the truth you got Barbie, but you're contracted to be shooting this L.A. Law pilot. And there's kind of like a two-week overlap that's looking a little hairy. And we don't know whether you're going to be able to do both of them. It's actually probably looking like you won't. I really, oh, God, like I wanted, it was just like, like wanting to do everything. And it's not that I didn't want to do L.A. Law, but it was like, come on, I, I want to do Barbie. So I was like, look, like, is there anything I can do? Is there anything we can do? My team knows I write, and they know that I have that at my disposal. And they were like, I, I forget whether it was them or me whose idea it was. But we came to the conclusion that I could write Greta and Margot and the cast and, you know, Alison Jones, the casting director, a letter. Basically just like, saying how much I wanted to be a part of it. You know, I just felt significantly like I had something unique to contribute to this film. Being who and how I was. And, you know, again, I I said the caveat that, like, identity politics... And cinema aren't my favorite combination. You may notice that I have not said the word trans during this interview. I'm kind of cagey about it. And I feel like the more I talk about it and the more I foreground it, the more it becomes the focal point of how people see me and regard me rather than my work and the choices that I make and my acting style or whatever. I I just want to be known as a great actor. I don't, or, or, you know, I would rather be known as that than a pioneer, or as Naomi Watts' character says in my favorite movie, Mulholland Drive, I'd rather be known as a great actress than a movie star. I, I truly believe that. I I truly feel that way. And um, just because I don't talk about it in public doesn't mean I don't think about it and feel it every day. And, you know, I, I specifically spoke to the word doll and the idea of a doll. And the word doll is the word that, starting from ballroom culture, it's sort of proliferated outward and it's a very popular word for trans girls who are feminine and it's a word that my friends use it's a word that I use I think it's a more fun word than trans woman or trans femme like you know it's like it's like doll I I like doll and transsexual (laughs) like those (laughs) those are my two favorites the rest of it sounds kind of corny to me but I was like what are we actually saying when we are referring to ourselves as dolls. Like, we're saying we're pretty, and we're saying we're feminine. But, like, what is a doll? Because, like, a doll isn't a woman. A doll is an inanimate object. A doll is, like, a fake woman. A doll is, especially in the case of Barbie, like, vintage Barbie, like, 
canon Barbie, kind of an unrealistic, unattainable idea. You know, small waist, large breasts, the hips, the height, the proportion. It's like, what are we saying by using this word to describe ourselves? It's celebratory and kind of dark at the same time. It's a standard that all of the, you know, so much of the instability, dysphoria, and insecurity that we encounter comes from that standard, being weighed against that standard. It's, it's, it's all very ambivalent and kind of fraught. And <laughs> that's what I'm drawn to as an actor. <laughs> Listen, like, I love playing two things at once. I love things that are beautiful with a little drop of poison inside. I love things that are fun with a little bit of danger lurking in the heart. I love drag. I love things that are so real, they're fake, and things that are so fake, they're real. You know, these are aesthetics and ideas that are appealing to me and cool to me. And I just had a feeling, especially with Greta at the helm, that we were not going to shy away from these trickier parts of the Barbie legacy and of the doll legacy. And again, like, you know, I, I wrapped up that idea in the letter by just saying no doll is more important than Barbie. Barbie is the doll. I was basically saying, like, look, like, I'm, I'm a doll, so you should include me in this if you've already decided that I fit the role. And I had another letter ready to go, being like, this sucks, but like, I am so excited for this movie. If it's not me, please cast another doll. If not me, then someone who's available. Like, I just feel like, the, like one of the girls, at minimum, needed to be there. Even reading just that one section that you, that you revealed... I mean, clearly impossible to say no, and they clearly completely rewrote the schedule for you. But what was it like working with Greta? A joy. Mm, Again, another pageant answer. But like, it was. It didn't feel like, oh my God, we're making this big, important movie, and it's so scary. Actually, the first day was kind of scary, because the first day was the choreographed dance. You will see in the final cut of the movie that there are not a lot of shots of me dancing. Actually, I don't think any of them made it in, because I came late, and I had to learn it quickly. I was all the way on the side, but, you know, like, the first thing we shot was, like, a choreographed dance in the kind of, like, Barbie cul-de-sac. I was like, oh, like, with, like, 40 backup dancers. I was like, oh, my God. That was kind of scary, but that wasn't Greta. That was just, like, what the schedule required. Greta, I mean, Greta was always, like, holding in her laughter. And as soon as cut was yelled, like, ah, Greta's laugh. There was, like, nothing like that laugh to make you feel like you did a good job. We would all, like, run over to the monitor after. We started saying, we had this, like, it was, like, this, like, silly little joke we had. We would be like, mommy, mommy, say you like it. Please say you like it. Mommy, say you like it. And um, I don't know. I think having, like, being an actor herself, she um, knows how to work with actors. She's, like, not giving, like, rigid auteur shoot the scene 48 times, like, please do it this way, please do it this way. She, I think she does a lot of that in casting, and she is able to identify actors whose instincts match her vision, and she lets us explore. But also, she clearly trusted you all. She trusted her cast and let you do what you wanted to do with the role. I mean, I'm sure not, you know, couldn't take it anywhere. But what's what's next, and do you have, like, a challenge new challenge that you've got your eye on? I want to play a lead role, and I'm attached to play 
Candy Darling in the authorized biopic about her life. Candy Darling was um, an actress in, um, you know, the 60s and early 70s. She was amused to Andy Warhol. Um, she was a transsexual, gorgeous. And she, you know, broke through in an unprecedented way into kind of like smaller Hollywood films in a way that hadn't been done before. She kind of modeled herself after Kim Novak and all of these, um, you know, old Hollywood women. You know, her her best and biggest role was Women in Revolt, um, which was um, a Warhol film. And, you know, she, she, she's a trans icon. She's like, you know, kind of like a cult icon as well. And um, her story is really interesting. She She died very young and very kind of like early into her stardom. And I heard there was a movie being made about her and I read that my friend was producing it and I just like knocked on their door and um, was like, please, oh, please. And they let me in. And right now we are kind of putting together the package. Um, you know, I think we have a director. I can't say who yet. Okay, I was going to ask. Um, the script is... A work in progress. I think we're just trying to put together that package and get that financing. The goal is to shoot it early next year. And quite frankly, there are several other independent film scripts, you know, written by friends of mine, things that I'm attached to both as actor and producer. I'm quite frankly behind the scenes trying to parlay all of this hype around Idol and Barbie to maybe get some of these independent films made, you know, and kind of just like speak in the language of the financiers. Um, I would like to have a bigger role in, um, you know, making the things that I act in, bringing them to the screen, writing them, producing them. You know, when I'm not acting, I write and, you know, I don't just write for screen. I write essay. I write criticism. I'm interested in writing fiction. You can't have your whole creative output be based on getting cast in things or picked for things. So whenever, you know, there's no acting work, I just go back to the typewriter. You also sound pretty busy, I'm going to say. <laughs> in a good way. I get around. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you, <laughs> fill, you fill your time. Um, I was going to say, and finally, whose voice or vision inspires you the most? I mean, Candy Darling is kind of top of mind. I relate to her so much because she saw this future where she could be loved and understood and accepted, not only as a woman, but as like an actress and a star. And she, you know, leaned on glamour, leaned on femininity, leaned on, you know, charm in, you know, the language of cinema and Hollywood. Like, that was kind of her, in her mind, it was like her bridge into being accepted as a person. If she could embody that, then people could see her, love her, and understand her in the same way that they, you know, could see, love, and understand, you know, Marilyn Monroe or Betty Davis or Kim Novak. I think ultimately her investment and pursuit of that, like, elusive, rigid, tragic, blonde Hollywood ideal was maybe not something that, like, served her soul as well in the long run, but it was also a source of hope and kind of the bedrock of an identity for her. And 
I've always kind of like lived through my work and understood myself through my work long before I kind of understood myself outside of my work. I was being casted as women in high school. People could see it. <laughs> um, despite the way I looked, despite the way my body looked, there, there, there was an essence that was coming through. It, it, it was through playing women, through realizing that the female monologues sat better in my voice and in my head and in my heart that, that, that I could act them better. Like that was what led me to kind of bigger changes in my life. Like I, that's something that I feel really a lot through her. And obviously with, you know, hopefully this production around the corner, I've been thinking about her a lot. And so I think Candy would be pretty excited that someone like us was in this movie. Well, like, I mean, I, I can't wait to for you to give her a voice again. Yeah. Oh God. She 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 probably would have hated me though. She probably she probably would have been jealous. Impossible. We can't hate you. She 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 probably would have been like, why is this girl wearing a suit for her podcast interview about Barbie? Oh no no. She would have read me down. But that's why I love her. Um, I could talk to you all day. Thanks for sitting with me on the tangents. Thanks thanks for letting me be vulnerable. Um. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, here, I'm here for that anytime you need me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Vision and Voice was brought to you by Netta Porte and Chalk and Blade. Hosted by Netta Porte's content director, Alice Casely Hayford, and fashion director, Kay Barron. The team at Netta Porte was Katie Barrington as the senior editor, with casting by Annabelle Brog and Olivia Wakefield, and coordination by Erin Shanahan. The producer at Chalk and Blade was Emily Wally. Original music by Alexis Adamora. And the series was mixed by Nasson De Silva.